0: You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. The number of government workers who put in for retirement at the end of 2020 is up. We talked to the head of the Hawaii Employees Retirement System, Thomas Williams, in the last week of December 2020. His office fielded a boost in inquiries from many state and county employees. Between the talk of furloughs and layoffs and the realities of working remotely, many have been certainly wondering if it was time to retire. Here's a conversation we had with Tom Williams.
1: We've been monitoring those carefully to see if, in fact, there was an increase, decrease, or continuation of the norm. And, in fact, there has been about, i say, a 15% increase over our average. We have about between 2,300 and 2,350 per year over the last five years. And that's gone up uh, to about 2,650 this year. So that equates to about a 15% increase and, in fact, what we've seen in December is almost 1,000 applicants for retirements. We had a close to 100 withdraw their applications, but that's a significant portion of the annual total. That's about 38% of the year's applicants occurring in December. It's not unusual. December is a common year where we get an uptick or a common month in which we get an uptick. Same with June and July, end of academic years for the teachers, et cetera. But I think this year we see a little more interest in retirement just because of uh, the discussion around furloughs and layoffs. But I think in particular, COVID has created some, you know, some anxiety about continuing in the workplace. And for those people who are eligible to retire... And they don't see uh, any real advantage, they maybe reach their maximum. They see themselves as uh, better off taking advantage of that opportunity to leave the workforce and begin lifetime retirement income.
0: Is there anything you can share just about the numbers of employees that are eligible to retire?
1: Yeah, you know, we are a very, very mature plan. Uh, you know, we have out of about, about 66,000 active members, we have 12,800 that are eligible to retire, and that's about 19% of our membership. So almost 2 out of 10 of our membership could retire today because they've attained necessary years of service and age to be eligible to retire. So this only occurs in mature plans. you know, when you've had been around since we, like uh, 1926, for example, when we were founded. So we have the capacity for a significant outflow.
0: As far as the actual breakdown of let's say, the retirees. I mean, do you have any info to say that we're seeing more teachers retire or more
1: faculty? You know, we will have to examine the data a bit more carefully. But historically, about 24% of our retirements are academics. That would include the Department of Education as well as the instructional staff at the University of Hawaii. We think that that's probably maintained uh, for the present. Do the
0: retirees give any explanation as to why they may be making this decision to step down?
1: You know, it's it's merely anecdotal, Catherine. The reality is that we don't ask that information, but sometimes they uh, do share. And what I've heard from staff that it relates to COVID, but also there is an the incentive to stay on for a number of employees. Because of the economic uncertainty across the globe and certainly in our community, as lots of spouses and significant others and family members have perhaps lost jobs due to the downturn in the economy, and it makes those who are gainfully employed more inclined to, to stay so.
0: I imagine, too, there is that bit of uncertainty about program cuts, and maybe folks just want more control over their future You know, as to when, when they step away.
1: Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right there. The program cuts portend for a lot of workers more work, furloughs, less pay, and that's not particularly enticing for most. And I think the attrition that's being eyed is one source of savings for the state, and by that I mean when the state decides, for example, not to replace certain retiree positions and I believe that that's one aspect that's being considered for budgeting purposes. That too would result in the work being distributed amongst a smaller number of individuals, and that may very well serve to incentivize people to head out a little earlier than they otherwise might have.
0: And there has been lots of attention to unfunded liabilities, uh, and I know with this budget crunch and our shortfall that we're facing. You know, the governor, I think, is probably going to have to pull back on what he would like to see put into this fund.
1: Fortunately, the governor has shown a strong commitment for continuing contributions to the retirement fund. I believe there's been a suspension of advance payments to the health care fund, but so far, no real suspension of payments to the ERs. He's going to keep us on track. However, at the same time, to the extent that there are furloughs, and less salary paid, we get lesser contributions. And a significant portion of every dollar we get goes to defray our unfunded liability. And so when we get a little less money, if it's 10% or 9% less than we otherwise would have received, it extends the period to a full funding. And it costs us a little bit more. But again, I wanna emphasize that so far, the governor has indicated a strong support for continuing the contributions to the retirement plan. It has implications not only for our funding status, but the state's uh, credit worthiness and the like. It's a significant consideration for the rating agencies.
0: Recently, uh, our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat did a story about uh, some of the overtime issues that have surfaced over at the Honolulu Police Department. You know, when you have employees that would be making normally seventy, seventy-five thousand $75,000 and then all of a sudden banking thousands in overtime. I mean, what does that mean for your planning?
1: Well, it it means a significant increase in the unfunded liability. And it means that we have to try to recoup that to the extent possible through charges to the employers. There's a so-called spiking charge that we are able to recover a portion of the unfunded liability or the deficits that are created by those increases in pay. But it's insufficient to make us whole, quite frankly. So on an annual basis, we're billing the employers, the state, the city and counties for those pension spiking costs, and they are going to increase because the rate of overtime has increased dramatically during this COVID period, and it already equals millions of dollars per year. So states are not going to be, or counties are not going to be in a position to continue to absorb expenses at that level so I think what we're going to see is a big effort on behalf of the agencies to constrain overtime.
0: And explain to our listeners because folks may not understand how that spiking works.
1: Yeah well what we do is we look at a career of employment and we try to see and assure ourselves that the kind of increases that have occurred over the lifetime or career of those workers that they're average that they're normal and sometimes when we see in, for example, the last several years of one's employment, their salaries increased dramatically. And it wasn't due to a promotion or a position change, but it was just an increase in overtime. We have a test that we apply, and it will reveal when those benefits or those salaries are excessive relative to the historical averages. And we calculate the cost of that additional benefit, and we pass that on to the employer. But it's never 100 percent because there is a certain amount of increase that goes through that is not captured by the spiking formula. So it's only these uh, excessive cases that really hit the radar, if you will.
0: And I know we've had a conversation about this before. But since we're talking about the police department and the issue of uh, the police chief's retirement, we don't have any rules about felony forfeiture when it comes to. Uh, retirement, you know, if there's a judgment levied against uh, an employee, right?
1: Uh, You're absolutely right. There is no felony forfeiture uh, statute in effect at present. Uh, Every year or or two, there is a bill introduced generally by others who would uh, impose that forfeiture, but to date, it hasn't advanced through the legislature.
0: Okay, so uh, no chance to be able to uh, do anything about that at this point.
1: That's absolutely right.
0: Anything else you think would be important to underscore just as we look ahead and deal with these retirements?
1: Well, you know, we're going to be monitoring everything very, very carefully, and it just highlights for me the importance of, you know, strict adherence to uh, discipline and making the contributions. And it also reminds me and others of just how an important role the pension plan plays in the economic recovery, because uh, I think you're aware that we last year uh, injected into the state's economy about $1.5 billion. And we do that in good times and in bad. And I think that that's a significant support, uh, a baseline for the state to uh, begin its recovery from COVID and the downturn in tourism.
0: Okay. And then uh, what about your your staff? I don't know how impacted you are, you know, with the shutdown or are you fully staffed?
1: You know, I am very, very pleased to say that from a healthcare perspective, we've had no internal and immediate effects from COVID. Most of us have been safe and we've taken extraordinary measures internal to uh, adjust for social distancing, the uh, hand-washing, Everything, you name it, we've got thermal scanners in place so that people come in to get their temperatures taken, et cetera. Staff is working very, very hard as a result of a significantly increased interest in retirement. So even those who haven't pulled the trigger yet are calling to find out, you know, what's it mean to me? What am I eligible for? What if, you know, various scenarios. So the staff is working very, very hard. You know, there is a hiring freeze. We have a couple of positions that are deemed critical that uh, we were allowed to hire by the governor, but that still leaves, I think, about an 8% reduction in our staff that we're not able to fill because of the hiring freeze. But fortunately, people are inspired, they're working hard, and uh, we're staying on top of things as we speak.
0: Uh, Even as the workload increases. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time.
1: Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And um, all the best during the holidays and beyond.
0: That was Thomas Williams, Executive Director of the Employees Retirement System, talking about the increase of retirements and the impact of spiking with the recent stories about the padding of overtime by HPD. harp music has a soothing quality about it. Ruth Friedman has played her harp for many on their deathbed. She spent a decade at Kalopapa tending to Hansen's disease patients after being recruited from a world away. This nurse from Israel hadn't planned on making Hawaii her home. Friedman is now in her 80s. She also played harp with the Honolulu Symphony and discovered a way to spread the harp's healing properties during this pandemic. She's been separated from her harp during the shutdown this year. She still volunteers in the community, and so she turned instead to a collection of Negro spirituals compiled by African-American composer Harry Thacker Burley that she long ago discovered in a little music shop in Nevada. Some of the songs were more than 100 years old. She spent her time in isolation transcribing the hymns for harp, some are well known, some haven't been heard for decades. Thanks to Friedman, they've just been published by Lion and Healy Harps out of Chicago, Illinois.
2: I was just passing a music store, and I can't resist, like a dress store, you want to see if there's something new that will fit. And I saw this box with sale items, and on the top it said 12 Negro Spirituals. Well, I wasn't interested, I passed it by because I'm Jewish. But at the same time, I had just looked inside, and it looked rather harpistic, and that is something that was appealing to me, the sale also. So I bought it and took it home. It was so beautifully corded, such development. I was so entranced. I went back. This man had written about a 100 art songs as well as transcribing them and printing out the spirituals set it down after he was recruited from the New York Conservatory of Music by Booker T. Washington, who was looking for somebody to take him on summer trips so that he could give his speeches, yet the ex-slaves or sharecroppers go into his college. When he first got there on a work scholarship... So it was
0: a descendant of a slave? Yes, his grandson.
2: And The grandfather took him and his little brother around when they had to guide him through the streets. The mother was a widow. She was cleaning houses, and he would sing to the boys because he couldn't tell them stories and couldn't read a book. He had such a beautiful voice. The grandson happened to inherit that virtue, and he became a singer in their choirs and then launched out into being a wedding singer until he was discovered. Now, who was the director of New York Conservatory of Music at that time? He had just come in. His name was Anton Dvorak. And nobody knew that he was trying to find, from little hurdy-gurdies or whatever street music he could hear, the music of America. He was writing a symphony that he would call the New World Symphony, And this was his discovery when he heard this black student, I believe he was 26, washing the floors at night and singing with his beautiful baritone voice. He said, this is Anton Dvorak, he said, change this man's work program so that he sings for me each evening for my supper, the plantation songs. And this was a story, but he could not put it into his New World Symphony because his colleagues were so adverse to it. And Anton Dvorak said, What do you mean? This is the freshest music I've found on this side of the water. But he didn't. He left all the spirituals out, and the closest thing is maybe in the second movement of his New World Symphony, which had its opening premiere at Carnegie. Almost one of the first Carnegie performances given shortly before Anton Dvorak, returned to Bohemia.
0: Well, so so basically, though, he recognized the passion in these Negro spirituals.
2: Exactly right. And so then he told Perry, before he went back to Bohemia, he says, give these melodies to the world. But where I found it, it was solos for a singer with the background music, you know, some chords here and there. And also... They had choir arrangements, but nothing was ever written for a solo instrument or piano.
0: Tell us about how
2: you turned the harp for healing. I have to say one thing. It is the most healing of any instrument, and this is from Arthur Harvey, a professor in music therapy at UH. He says, why is it so therapeutic? Because of its resonance. The resonance from its deep sound body.
0: Now you were a nurse at Kalopapa, and you brought your harp with you. Yes,
2: <laughs> it's my furniture. Follows me <laughs> everywhere. It really is. It's my treasure, and it's my distraction. And I only picked it up in college.
0: So you were able to uh, play this harp for the residents there at Kalopapa.
2: Correct. But the one thing is that it was the sister who played the organ, and I think it helped me get that job. So they put it into the church, and the sister there would have me accompany whatever they were doing for uh, the choir, a beautiful choir of the patients. In Latin, they couldn't change because so many patients had become blind. So it was sort of known as last Latin mass in Hawaii. And this is where, where I played. But once I heard a black man singing. He wasn't black, but the medicine turned his skin dark. And he was just singing. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. So I took him, walked him over to the church. The harp had just come in. And I sat him down and I asked him to sing it. And I played with the harp. Thank goodness I had that in my little notebook. And his voice was so deep, so resonant, so heartfelt. And the height of the little church there, St. Francis Church, was so much that it carried everything. And he just sang with all his heart. And then we made a little program that I recorded the next day. And also so that he could... um, Sort of recovery in between songs, I would play a solo. So it's every other one, but I think we have five of his songs, and he is even to this day not quite able to converse too well, but he certainly sings.
0: That was Ruth Friedman talking about harp therapy. The patient she talked about was Makia Malo, Kalopapa's storyteller, and Ruth Friedman shared a recording of that song with us.
3: Support for H.P.R. comes from Christina Hom and the Parks Group at Morgan Stanley in Honolulu, wealth advisor and institutional consultant for social and environmental investments. 525-6977, Morgan Stanley, Smith Barney, LLC, member SIPC.
4: Welcome 2021. It's time to make a list of what to do to stay healthy and safe for the new year. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk to a doctor about how to create our own personalized health program and how to stick to our resolutions. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Virtual Open House Sunday, January 10th. More by searching Osher Hawaii.
0: Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check today looks forward and back at the state of rail, Hawaii's most expensive municipal project ever. Marcel Henri joins us. Good morning, Marcel.
5: Morning, Catherine. Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year, and is this going to be a good year for rail or what?
5: <laughs> oh boy, it's going to be an interesting year for rail. a lot of these years have been so far.
0: <laughs> well, now we have an interim head, interim CEO at uh, at at Heart.
5: That's right. We have a, a basically we the the era of Andrew Robbins, which had gone from 2017 to 2020, is now officially in the books. And we have an interim for, she has a, a year contract, and that is Lori Kahikina, who is now the uh, former director of the city's Department of Environmental Services. Uh, she served in that role for all eight years of Mayor Caldwell's uh, term.
0: Right, and then she was also, I think, head of DDC under the previous administration, too.
5: Right, she's she's got a lot of experience in uh Uh, the public sector at the city, and also some in the private sector prior to that.
0: So still an interesting choice uh, because, you know, as we get into this last segment, right, the last uh, several miles uh, into town, the big headache is Dillingham where we have a lot of utilities, a lot of sewer lines and water lines. So she's familiar with that.
5: Right. A lot of uh, the current woes that are plaguing the rail project, I mean, it, it all hinges On the problems along Dillingham Boulevard, Uh, you've got throughout the rest of the urban core, you've got about 40 miles, give or take, of utility lines that need to be relocated. And rail officials are saying about two thirds of those alone are on the Dillingham stretch, which is uh, a lot less than half of that whole, uh, you know, four mile stretch into town. So it's a really hyper concentrated, hyper dense. uh, It's just a headache uh, that's really uh what's been driving the latest cost and schedule problems and it, I would say that the thinking here seems to be that here's here's uh Lori who helped spearhead a lot of the the city's efforts to relocate sewer lines and and the like and, and overhaul the the city's aging uh, sewer infrastructure and they've they've seemed to be doing that uh you know, relatively smoothly, uh, on time and on budget, unlike rail, uh, covering you know Mayor Caldwell's administration for the the, the past eight years, uh, you know I can say he would he would fairly at times they, they would, you know when they they would kind of frankly kind of brag about stuff that they were they were doing well they would talk a lot about the um the the street paving you know and the progress on road repaving and they would talk about sewers and you know Lori. Spearheaded that, and a lot of that work is in this urban corridor where rail is struggling uh, so badly. So that seems to be the thinking with this hiring.
0: And this piece that uh, you co-wrote with uh, Kevin Dayton. I mean, you folks look back at uh, some of the uh, the, the disastrous, uh, I guess, points, uh, the ups and downs. Like you know, your, your headline says, you know, 2020 was the year that the wheels fell off. It was rough.
5: Yeah, I mean, I hope that wasn't too harsh of a headline, but frankly, it really was a, a hell of a year for rail and not in the best way. Uh, when you look at, you know, the, the, the price tag is now up around eleven billion dollars, and that's you know they're they're still getting the, the, the estimate together on that. Uh, the P three effort, which had stalled for about a year and then kind of kind of collapsed, um, you know, they're 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 not getting an influx of the remaining federal dollars at 744 million the the state revenues uh that have collapsed with the pandemic and yeah of course uh with all of that the the collapse of the the dillingham uh utility relocation effort i mean you know we've been kind of covering this and and as every you know cog and and uh turn of the 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 wheel turn of the screw uh so for kevin and i it just seemed worthwhile to put 2020 into perspective as we uh head into 2021.
0: Yeah. So I guess the two bright spots, uh, a new CEO at the helm who is uh, kind of familiar with design and construction and and sewer lines, uh, utility lines. Uh, But we also got an extension from the feds on on the money, right? It's not going to completely disappear.
5: Right. So we haven't uh, drawn that down. The city hasn't drawn that down. uh, But they they uh won't lose access it won't lapse either right. uh, but the challenge there is to you know the feds have been looking for a viable plan to finish the Moana, and i don't know if that is going to materialize this year i mean we'll have to see uh but short of that we'll have to see whether the feds release it before the the year extension on that money is up
0: yeah we've got to pray for a better year you know it's like we're so close and yet so far yeah All right. Well, thanks so much, Marcel.
5: Thank you, Catherine.
0: That was reporter Marcel Henry with today's reality check. You can read the story that he and Kevin Dayton wrote at civilbeat.org. The Sundance Film Festival will break some notable ground for Native Hawaiians in filmmaking later this month. This is the way we rise is to be the first film directed by a Native Hawaiian woman to premiere at the prestigious event. In the film, director Kiara Lacey spotlights Native Hawaiian poet Jamaica Heolemele Ikalani Osorio as she reflects on her poetry, activism, and time spent on Mauna Kea. They spoke to the Conversations producer Harrison Patino about the film.
4: I think... Looking back at the film, it's been an incredible opportunity to witness the growth of our community, as need a point, as well as witness Jamaica's creative regrowth as well. It's been a real privilege to watch these two sort of beautiful little miracles happen. And um, I think that's what it's offered me. And I'm grateful for the chance to of it with the cameras.
6: And Jamaica is the de facto star of this film. What does it mean to you?
7: I think on like the large-scale level, the film is really important to me because it's been able to capture such an important ongoing movement and uprising of our people in Hawaii and really an important shift in, I think, contemporary Hawaiian consciousness and being able to catch a lot of that on film is really special. And then from like a personal standpoint, most of the stuff that happened during the filming of the actual film, everything going on was really high stakes at that moment. And so I didn't have time to sit back and reflect and, and really remember all the amazing things that happened in those, those months. And so on a personal level, the film is like this amazing gift to be able to transport back to that time and remember what it felt like to be in community with my people and to fight for the protection of our Aina and to remember that, you know, when the Lahu'i needs us the most that we show up. So it had a bit of all of that for me.
6: Jamaica, something early on in the film that really struck me was this idea of a starving for intimacy, this concept of pilina. Can you explain that to our listeners?
7: Pilina is the word we use in Hawaiian to describe really any kind of intimacy or closeness. It can even mean to be like stuck, physically stuck to something. And my work as, as a scholar is really about researching the way that our kupuna, our ancestors, practiced pilina and in intimacy with each other and how that was over time systematically disrupted and even policed out of our behavior through colonialism, which is obviously ongoing today. And so to me, I think there are so many parts of our lives that demonstrate the way that our people are starving for intimacy. We we crave to be close to our land, and yet we are displaced from the land because of development or poverty or whatever have you. We feel this this strong desire to be in community with each other, and yet there are all kinds of social ills that have been brought to us, again, by colonialism that keep us from each other, whether, again, that's poverty or violence or drug abuse or depression. And so I see a lot of a lot of the things we're going through today as as a people being really about trying to find that connection again in a way that is both meaningful and generative for us. And the movement to protect Mauna Kea, one of the things that's so profound about it is that it brought us together intimately. We got to know each other differently. We came and lived together on the side of a mountain, and we stood up from our own personal positions where we could. And it fed us a bit of that intimacy back in a way that I think was really healing for a lot of us in community.
6: Jamaica, you said something there about this film being almost like a time capsule, bringing you back Mm. to the rawness of the moment. With a year like 2020 behind us, was there a particular resonance or a lens with which you could view those events on, given the tumultuousness of the year we've just had?
7: If we think about the work as a commentary and a a process towards developing Peelina and intimacy, I think one of the things I've struggled with the most, and a lot of people close to me have struggled with the most in this last year, um, has been feeling isolated and alone and, and disconnected among all the other kind of burdens that have come with 2020. So I think being able to look back on a time where at least in my lifetime, I felt closer to my lahui than any other time in my life from this really difficult position of feeling so isolated and almost traumatized by that current isolation has been really profound. I think on the one hand, it makes me really miss 2019. And and the life now known as before COVID. But on the other hand, it also makes me profoundly hopeful and faithful that we will come together again in whatever way that looks like in this post-COVID world, that we're always going to be as a people, as, as we strive to protect our land, as we strive to, to fight for our rights. All of that is actually a work towards coming back together, that we won't forsake each other in that work. And so that gives me light in such a dark time.
6: Jamaica, you said that the film brings you back to the rawness of the moment. As a poet, what's it like to transpose your thoughts and reflections on Mauna Kea to the written and spoken word, and more specifically, in a year like 2020, when there's no real opportunity for performative poetry, to sort of have that opportunity to perform taken away? What, what's that like?
7: You know, when, when we were on the Mona, and we talk about this a bit in the film, I hadn't really been in practice in terms of writing regularly, and I certainly wasn't writing a lot of poetry, but I had come out of a period Time in my life where I was journaling more consistently than any other time of my life. And so it actually started when we got up to the Mona, I just wanted to remember things. i I have a terrible memory. Some of the most impactful moments of my life, I can't tell you anything about what happened. I can just tell you about what I felt. And I was so afraid that I would come out the other end of this experience and this movement without any documentation of it. And so I started to journal. And something about the Mona wanted to be told in poetry. and, so I don't really feel like I went into that experience trying to write poems about the mountain. I think the mountain pulled the poems out of me, which is I feel really privileged that that's what the Mauna wanted from me. And this time in COVID and those opportunities to perform kind of not being as plentiful, I think on the one hand, it's offered me an opportunity to kind of take a step back and think about, again, like why am I writing the things that I'm writing and, and what actually needs to be said out loud and what things don't need to be said out loud or shared. I have learned that as much as I, I love to share my work with folks, it's not really the performing that is a profound experience to me. It's actually being in the same space and creating resonance physically with people. And so 2020 has made that really difficult because we can't be in the same space. So we, for me, it's like we have to shift how are we going to create that resonance, how are we going to create that intimacy when we are literally so far away from each other and there are all these obstacles. And I don't think I really have... I haven't come to any kind of answers in that, but I think the questions moving out of 2020 are pretty valuable and how we might frame our approach to 2021.
4: You know, one thing I do find that in a COVID era translates for people and that you did well beforehand is your Instagram. Like I feel like it's a, it's a digital community that I feel like your words have power in that space and I can see how people respond to it. And it might not be like, Conventional or slam poetry, but hearing your words in that platform, I f- I find people really really respond to that as well. Just you know your thoughts and your comments and hearing your um hearing your spirit and the power of your words, people people hmm. are moved by that. And it might not be the the a physical space. I know that it helps a lot of people in the digital space you know, with the limitations of now. And even before that, I think, you know, for a lot of people that might not be in Hawaii or might not ha- be able to have a proximity to you, social media has been a way to sort of like connect with you in a different way. And um, I think it's a, it's been really effective.
7: Social media is such a strange space generally that COVID like I think changed a lot of our approaches to how we use technology. I mean, On the simplest sense, like my job has been transformed through technology and and Mm -hmm. COVID. But one of the things I didn't notice until kind of months later, because I think if you like look at my social media, you look at my Instagram, there's definitely a shift in how I'm used, how I started to use it. And I didn't realize until much later that a lot of it had to do with missing teaching in person. But I was like looking for opportunities to engage in those conversations. Um, And social media like offered a platform for that. Um, who knows what could happen when we can actually be in the same room again? But I think I think you're right, Kiara, that like we've we've had to be really creative about how we create space together, and maintain the pilina that we developed on the Mauna or in the classroom.
0: That was poet Jamaica Osorio and director Kiara Lacey talking with the conversations. Harrison Patino, the film This Is the Way We Rise is set to premiere at the Sundance Film Festival later this month.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Nico's Pier 38, fish market, restaurant, and bar. Now offering limited dine-in seating with online ordering for takeout and curbside pickup, open daily. Menu at nicospier38.com.
8: These days, the scene at home is busier. Hands full, meal in the oven, a dog begging for your attention. With so much going on inside, how can you stay connected to what is going on outside your home? Ask your smart speaker to play NPR. You'll get the latest news from your community and beyond. We'll keep you company while you keep things moving.
1: Ask your smart speaker to play KHPR
3: for HPR 1 or play KIPO for HPR 2. Support for HPR comes from Compassion and Choices, celebrating the second anniversary of the Our Care, Our Choice Act, allowing terminally ill adults to request a prescription for medical aid in dying. CompassionandChoices.org Hawaii.
0: 2020 ended on a high note for a Kalihi High School performing arts program. The national platform Amazon Prime started streaming T-Shirt Theater Presents Kipuka, an anti-bullying project back in November. It featured a diverse cast from Farrington High School and local audiences may remember the documentary when it first premiered at the 2018 Hawaii International Film Festival. Here's a clip of T-Shirt Theater co-founder George Kahn talking about the significance of the title.
1: When we considered a show about bullying, cyberbullying, and teen suicide, it was clear to us right at the onset that it's a very dark place to go. And we needed to have as an anchor or as as an image this safe place, this haven, some patch of goodness that could withstand all of that heat. We needed that to even begin this exploration. For ourselves, we did. And as we explored it, we discovered in a very direct way that T-shirt theater is a kipuka for a lot of the kids. And that, that became clearer as we
6: launched on this project.
0: The project was written and performed by Farrington students between the ages of 13 to 18. Their unique stories, drawn from personal life, were shared with audiences to help counteract the effects of bullying. Producer Lillian Song caught up with director and T-Shirt Theater alum Jeremiah Tayao to get the backstory about the
9: film. T-Shirt Theater does different types of shows twice every year. So in this particular instance, George Kahn and T-Shirt Theater received a grant from uh, the Gift Foundation to actually do a bunch of videos online regarding bullying. So it wasn't actually supposed to be a full-length feature documentary. But early on in the process, I kind of knew that there was a deeper story to be told. It was pretty advantageous, too, that uh, the subject was about bullying, because I feel like that's a topic that is super relatable to students. And because t is an organization that empowers students to voice their own stories, to write their own stories, in some, in some instances, direct them, uh, it, it seemed like a, a, a perfect thing to kind of expand on. And... Fortunately, we had the resources to make a feature film out of it, and that's how it ended up happening. But the, the structure of it being an anti bullying story was primarily for live audiences in the theater and for some online type videos. So that's what I was originally brought on for.
8: So, Jeremiah, the grant was for videos on bullying, but because of the format of T shirt theater, the performances were still on stage.
9: Yes, the grant was for us to do like an online adaptation of the performances, but there was enough story-wise, I think, in terms of like telling the students' perspectives and, and telling a little bit more about the organization, that we early in the process we decided to shift gears and instead of making short online videos, we made a feature-length documentary instead.
8: It sounds like T-shirt Theater is very collaborative, so students were able to also bring their voices into the project, what was the timeline for the students to get involved and start sharing their stories and then getting that into a script and staging it?
9: Mm-hmm. So we looked off of teacher theater's timeline, really. So their whole process is they would go and share their stories amongst themselves. And when they have a concept or an idea, they would put it up on stage and kind of act it out. And the person that originated the story would have to then transcribe that in text format to George Kahn, and then that that would be actually the process of writing the script for the live performances. I do kind of want to backtrack a little bit on this, um, because I think it's interesting that uh, T-Shirt Theater brought in a bunch of guest speakers, and they shared their personal stories with the students at T-Shirt Theater, and they covered topics that are pretty heavy, like depression, and teen pregnancy, and suicide, and... And we then see how their experiences informed the stories that the students were able to tell on stage. So from there, they were able to internalize that and take on multiple perspectives on it, on bullying, such as like cyber bullying, self-bullying, being a bystander to bullying, and, and even taking on the perspective of the bully. So uh, the scenes that you see uh, that play on it in, in the film are often written and sometimes directed by the students themselves. There is a... Um, There's a story that Nadia shares about self-feeding and, you know, getting down on yourself and beating yourself up for for things that are internal, you know. You might have, like, supportive friends that are trying to break you out of your funk, but sometimes the bullying comes from within, and I think that's a really interesting kind of angle to take it at. There's, There's also other stories about being a bystander, you know, um... Watching voting happen and not deciding to or to not interject yourself when you're witnessing something happen, you know? There's all sorts of really, really interesting takes on it that I think is um, beautiful about what T-shirt theater brought to the table because it allowed the students to, to voice uh, themselves what they think about the topic. And I I think it comes out in in very beautiful, beautiful ways on stage.
8: Well, Jeremiah, this is your first ever feature film that you directed. It's been about two years since it premiered Mm -hmm. at HIF. How do you feel about this project having legs beyond the film festival and that you're seeing it get nationwide distribution on Amazon Prime?
9: Well, first of all, um, shout out to to HIF. I have a very special uh, relationship with, the Hawaiian International Film Festival. I was actually like a volunteer before years ago. And during my time at the Academy for Creative Media, we would also screen our, our student films at HIF. So being able to premiere it there was really special. And to also see the cast there and see them react to this new finished product was really special for me too. To follow that up, being able to actually see it being distributed on Amazon Prime is still something that... I'm trying to get used to. Uh, again, this project wasn't even initially designed to become a future film, much less um, be where it's at right now. So during this time, it's, it's really important to also share this type of story of communities that are full of positivity and empower young people to, to be able to express themselves and, and uh, find their voices at a very young, and formative age. I think it's it's a story that's also semi-autobiographical for me and also for a lot of people that have gone through the teacher Theater program. It's, it's, a, it's an experience that we all kind of go through. You know, first of all, having the friendships that have blossom during practices, it's, it's kind of like you have a shared experience with your contemporaries. Like, you, you're all going to go on the stage and you're all going to perform in front of 1,200 of your peers in your high school. And from there, you know, it's instantly transformative as a performer at yeah. You hear the reaction of the crowd, and um, those are your friends. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's really cool to be able to share that story on, on a platform like Amazon Prime.
8: So what's been the response now that Kipuke has been streaming?
9: Yeah, um, fortunately, Amazon Prime does have this feature where <laughs> where people can come in and comment and uh, share their experiences. And what's, what's really kind of cool about reading, reading through the comments on Amazon Time is that it's not entirely always just about the film itself, though I do appreciate the comments about the film, but I, I also really like that people are talking about their experiences with Teacher Theater and how, how that experience has, has affected them. What's really cool about Teacher Theater is uh, there's a mantra that Teacher Theater shares with its students, and that's to the host for life. And I truly believe that T-Shirt Theater does that. It prepares students for life beyond high school. The discipline and dedication that goes into coming to practice on time and honing and developing your skills in writing, communication, teamwork, and public speaking are all skills that have real-world applications.
0: That was T-Shirt Theater alumni Jeremiah Tayao, who directed the feature-length documentary, Kipuka, an anti-bullying project. It's now reaching global audiences on Amazon Prime. Founded by George Kahn and the late Walt Delaney, T-shirt theater has been teaching students to rehearse for life beyond high school since 1985. We'll post links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. That's it for today. Tomorrow we hear about getting back in the skies following the recent volcanic activity at Kilauea. We talked to photographer Mick Calber, who lost a home to lava. Do you have a story idea to share with us? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.